We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another great guest this week, another sort of jack of all trades from the chess world. Uh, our guest today is a USCF national master. He's also a founder of a successful scholastic chess program in the Seattle, Washington area. And he also uh, does some training. He is live from Batumi, training the Ugandan women's chess team as we speak, or coaching them, I should say. And he's also just published a chess book called The Pawn's Journey. So we've got a lot to talk about, and I want to thank our guests for joining us. Thank you, Elliot Neff. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to be on, and greetings from Batumi, where the opposite side of the world, 11 hours difference from where I'm normally in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, all the way across the world. And you've got to give us the lowdown because I've been babbling about the Olympiad for months for the, as regular listeners have heard. It's my favorite tournament as a fan and I would love to get there someday. I've been checking out the vlogs that Maurice Ashley has been posting and of course reading various recaps and sweating the games on my phone when I can. So what's it like to be there, Elliot? <laughs> Thanks for asking. This is my first Olympiad where I've actually come in person and really just donating some time to support Fiona Matessi and some of her teammates as possible. And to be here in person, it's rather interesting because the way the playing hall is set up, you're really up in the bleachers overlooking the top boards. And then once you get down past the first, I think it's 30 or 40 boards, the rest of the players are in a different building that has no spectator access. So it's quite interesting, too, because of the security that they have. You have to check in. You have to check your cell phone. No photos, no cameras, no cell phones, no electronics of any kind. They'll even take some people's watches to ensure that there's as little as possible chance of any cheating going on. So it's quite fascinating to see these top players, Caruana and the others on the U.S. men's team and the women's team. It's an exciting year with U.S. trying to defend their gold from a couple of years ago and the women's team was in clear first just last round yeah and the drama is ongoing as we record this will hopefully be out we're recording on monday and this will hopefully be out the very next day if not a day or two later but just um a couple of points to clarify for listeners so fiona mutesi is the subject of uh queen of Catway, and that's um elliot's uh one of the people who elliot helps coach so that's who he was referring to and the other thing i just wanted to highlight was so elliot mentions the different rooms and i know that when the u.s women's team uh didn't win in their first round i think or they ended up in the second room i guess maybe they won but their score wasn't as high as expected in any event they ended up in the second room that you speak of and i know in one of the reports i can't remember if it was alejandro ramirez um, or Peter Doggers or my client or whoever it was that wrote it was saying it might be a blessing in disguise because the the room you speak of where the top players are playing is very crowded um, and can be noisy. But the the other room where the majority of players are in the separate building, as you say, 
uh, was a little bit more civil and a little bit more of what chess players are used to. Yes, exactly. That's what I heard, too, from the players, is that the second building is actually slightly better in terms of accommodations. I'm not sure if things have changed since those early rounds, uh, but that was an interesting fact. So what do you want to have, better accommodations or top place? Well, I think that's an easy one, though. <laughs> right, yeah, and I know we've seen, we exactly, and we've seen some people editorializing about the conditions. Uh, listeners know I'm not... Uh, in the in the tank for fide i'm willing willing to call them out but to me from my perspective sitting across the world like to to pull off an event of this scale with this many players um of course there's going to be some minor hiccups but it seems like overall they're they're doing a good job and the event is uh is is going well yeah from my perspective it seems to be flowing fairly smoothly now that being said it being my first olympiad where i'm here in person as opposed to just coaching from a distance uh, you know, I don't really have something to compare it to. So That's I'm a sure good the point. players have plenty to say about it. Those who are repeat Olympians, though. Well, let's think about it this way, Elliot, since it is your first time there. What has surprised you most? What What didn't you expect that you've seen at the Olympian? You know, that's a great question, Ben. And coming in, I anticipated that I would spend a lot more time at the plane hall but because of the rules with no cell phones and no pictures and not being really able to get close enough to see the positions on the board, I've ended up going to the playing hall only a couple of times and instead spending some time working with different players and then going back to my apartment where I watch the games online and then return to meet with the players at their location, not at the playing hall, but at their lodging in order to review games. So I think that was probably my biggest little bit of a surprise and as i was talking with another person i really do believe that chess is moving that direction of being an e-sport you know where the majority of what happens is really online even in these physical events the the spectator opportunity really is not the same that's interesting and that provides an explanation um i've been of course following this event on twitter and a few pictures have come out there's one with a uh, John Donaldson sitting there reading this like thick novel and another one, uh, Jan Gustafsson, who's coaching the Holland team, reading a book. So that explains why these coaches are all reading actual books and not Kindles and not just, you know, checking their phone. It's because they don't have a choice. So um, that's correct. Probably can't even bring an opening book in there. <laughs> probably <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> probably has to be not chess related. But uh, but yeah, so. That's interesting about an eSport as well. I mean, that's something that, of course, Chess.com's team, Danny Wrench, and uh, everyone else have been pushing hard with the uh, Pro Chess League being pretty successful. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting that even in the in-the-flesh events, they might have to sort of sequester the players. I hope that that, that can be avoided to some extent, but, but I get where you're coming from. I mean, these, these darn computers are so good at chess. Yeah, exactly. And having said all that, it still is quite an experience to be in that room. You know, I was there at the start of one of the rounds where Nona Gaprindashvili, who was the, you know, women's world champion, and she's from the country of Georgia right here, where she played the opening move on the top women's board. And to just be in that room with some of these top players from all the different countries is quite an, quite an interesting experience. Plus, I went to the Bermuda party briefly with a couple of others. And, you know, to be able to rub shoulders with MVL and some of the other players, it's, it is quite a fascinating experience. You know, I'd love to face some of them over the board someday, but uh, yeah. at least getting an opportunity to be up close and personal is fun. Yeah, I'm always trying to coax stories from the Bermuda party out of uh, guests we have who are Olympiad regulars. Um, but it seems mostly what happens at the Bermuda party stays there. <laughs> at, le- at least if the, uh, if the attendants are lucky. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. It it was pretty well attended. It was really loud, though. So, you know, not to put the party down at all, but myself and a couple of others who were trying to have a conversation decided that rather than using sign language, we might as well move next door where it's a little quieter so we could converse. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I took the took the party elsewhere. I didn't. So do you know sign language? No, that was a that was a, a joke. Meaning okay. we're trying to converse, but yeah, can't hear a thing you're saying. So we moved over. Gotcha. So, Elliot, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you managed, how you caught on uh, coaching Fiona Matusi and the Ugandan team? Yeah, thank you. So, Fiona Matusi, the background to that story is I, I heard about the book when it came out in, I think it was around 2013 when I heard about the story. 
And a friend of mine had called me up and told me about it. And I read the book and was just really fascinated by what was happening in Uganda with Robert Katende and the initiative there. And then I heard that they were coming to the Seattle area near where I am for a couple of meetings, including with the Gates Foundation. And so I offered to put on a fundraiser event at the time. And that's really where we met in January of 2014. Met Robert Katende and Fiona, and we ran a tournament, raised some funds to support the mission there. And while we were while they were visiting, Robert asked if I would be willing to help Fiona prepare for the World Olympiad. And that's really where it started. So the Olympiad in 2014, I uh, spent some months helping Fiona prepare using Skype in order to connect and do it long distance. And helped her prepare for that Olympiad. And then we stayed as friends. Later on, of course, the movie was coming out in 2016 when I also supported them and actually traveled to Uganda to help prepare her for the Olympiad as well as the uh, women's team in Uganda. And uh, that's really just continued. It's just been a friendship, really kind of behind-the-scenes friendship before ever the Disney movie was even in the works. And we've continued to support them as we can. So same thing happened for this year as we were talking about how we could best support and ultimately decided to uh, find a way to come on out to support Fiona and others as able to. So to be clear, I'm not the official coach of the Ugandan team. I've more been a friend and supporter. So helping with Fiona and a few others as needed. But it's been a neat journey to observe and to see the impact that Robert Katende has had in Eastern Africa you know, working with thousands of students now throughout that region. So, you know, that's the story in a nutshell. And uh, it's just been a joy to see what they're doing on the other side of the world, which parallels so much of what I've been doing in the Seattle, greater Seattle and across the U.S. Well, to me, I'm, it's all the more admirable that it's not in an official capacity that, that you're taking time. I mean, like me, you have a family of your own. You've you've got your business in Seattle. So to to take the time and travel across the world is uh, quite commendable. Well, thank you. It's just, you know, I've ever since meeting them and, and seeing the need and finding a way to support, we've done our best to, to do so. So excited to be here in person and support this way. And, you know, we'll see what the future holds. It's There's so many other students out there who really need the opportunity that chess provides. And I would say that's the reason I've been so eager to continue to support is I believe that Fiona is really a representative of thousands and thousands of kids around the world. And so, you know, thinking about those kids is what drives me. Yeah. And it's inspiring. I mean, Fiona, she she won many prizes in Uganda, but she's not she's not a grandmaster. But I think it's important that it highlights that. Chess can can change the lives of people who aren't necessarily titled players. It can still set your life on an entirely different track and provide opportunities that you wouldn't have had. Uh, whether you know whether you're a grandmaster or just just an enthusiastic scholastic player. Well, exactly, and you know, learning to think like you do in chess and then applying that to life is a very powerful tool. You know, it's really the reason I've even I'm even involved in the game of chess and teaching it. Because, you know, a little bit, a quick moment here, 16 years ago, I was quitting chess, even though I was coaching it part-time at that moment. And I was going to go back to college and go find a means in which to make impact in the world. And, and really the light bulb moment occurred then, where I saw that through coaching and mentoring chess, we were really developing these life skills in children. And since then, I've been full-time doing that, like I said, for 16 plus years now, wow. working with thousands of students. And so that's really the key. It's not how strong you are necessarily. It's nice to know there's a future opportunity if you have the talent, but it's really how you think about the chess game and how you think about life. You know, the consequences for choices and learning to think ahead. And like we like to say at Chess for Life, you can win, you can draw, or you can learn because losing is a mindset. If you lose a game, what do you learn from it and get better and stronger? Or do you hide from the pain of a loss? And so developing that grit and that determination is something powerful for a person's life beyond the chessboard. For sure. Yeah. And I want to get back to the story of how, how you built your business. Um, but 
one other question about uh, Fiona Matesi, and apologies for the for the mispronunciation earlier, Fiona, um, is uh, so I noticed in researching her that she she went to Northwest University um, in Washington. So did you do you see her there, and is she still there, or what? Like, what's other than playing for the Ugandan team? What's the latest on, on Fiona? Yeah. So the the backstory there is I'll back up a moment is at the red carpet premiere of the movie in Hollywood in 2016 when it came out uh, I was talking with Robert and Fiona and others and and was really like okay what's the next step she's graduating high school what's she going to do and and the the intent then was to find college and so after listening and looking at the kind of criteria they had I made a few phone calls and one of them was to Dr Castleberry of Northwest University the president there. And he immediately offered a scholarship to Fiona for her to come. He was the first one to do so. That's awesome. And that's really what led to her attending the university. Did you and know Did you know the president? I did. I had met him in various circles. I'm in that same area. It's close to Chess for Life. And it seemed like a natural fit because of having worked with her, that if she wanted to pursue her chess as well as her studies, if there was a university in the northwest area of the U.S., she might as well be able to you know, find a small college where she could, you know, get used to the Western culture and and get into her first year of college in a place where she could pursue both both directions, you know, college plus chess. So they looked at several, toured multiple colleges, and, and she's now entering her second year there. And within a few weeks of being in college, Benjamin Macumbia, another young man whose life is portrayed briefly in the movie, he also was given a scholarship, and, and at the university, they launched the university's chess team. So uh, I've ended up becoming the official chess coach of Northwest University's chess team. And that first year, last year, we went to the Pan Am Collegiate Championships, where they won the small college first place award uh, with Fiona and Benjamin on the team, plus some others. So she's in second year now at the university, doing well. We've got a chess team there hoping to go back to the Pan Am again, and they compete in a few other events, such as there was a tournament at Amazon, and then the Amateur Team West they competed in. So that's really what's going on now with Fiona and chess. That's awesome. I mean, it's uh, you know such a different life than than what's depicted in the movie, and presumably, uh, you know what she experienced growing up in Uganda. So, uh, from from your perspective. Uh, working with her and being friends with her, how, how is she adjusting? Is she, is she able to focus on her studies and still work on her chess and, um, you know, uh, assimilate into uh, the American college life? I would say she's adjusted extremely well into the college life. You know, first year, you're always figuring things out, especially when you're coming from a different culture. And year two, she's, she's very solid. I would say that she's got such a heavy load in college that there's not much time left for pursuing chess sadly right well in a sense i feel like that's that's how it should be i mean all due respect to chess but if you know if you're able to use it as a vehicle to to further your education and you're probably not going to be a professional level chess player it you know pursue it when you can and it's, it's still an awesome hobby and you know teaching chess is a you know, a potential career but while you're there make use of uh, the academic resources that are available to you totally Totally. And I would 100% agree with that because Fiona's future, even though chess was the means that opened doors in many ways, is now she has a platform and, and an opportunity. So she's developing that opportunity by pursuing her studies as rapidly as possible. So I'm fully supportive of that. And fitting chess in where she can is, is a great thing. So we'll see where it leads. Yeah. And just to give uh, listeners a little more context, Elliot is about 2300 USCF. And what are the ratings of the Ugandan women's team? So Fiona is playing board one for the Ugandan women's team at this Olympiad. And then boards two, three, four, and five, because they have, well, not board five. There's five players, though, because they rest one every round, four players on the team. You know, uh, Gloria is board, playing board four right now, and she's rate, ranked about 1,400 and something. Uh, Shakira's similar. So you know, the ratings are really below 16, 1700 at this point. So it's not like they're coming into the Olympiad going, okay, are we going to land top 10 or something? But it is a great thing to come in going, where are we ranked versus all the other teams? And what can we do to score higher than our ranking? 
And it's a tremendous experience, of course, for many of these players who might otherwise not have that opportunity to travel outside of their country, uh, to represent their country. And so it's, it's really a tremendous experience. Yeah, I, I imagine it as a U.S. player, as sort of like the U.S. amateur team tournaments, like on steroids, basically. Very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, Elliot, let's get back to your business. So you told us that, you know, 16 years ago, you you made the decision to pursue chess teaching as a career instead of just um, finishing school and thinking about something else. So uh, how how did your life proceed from there in terms of uh, develop, growing your business and, you know, devoting more and more to to your teaching. Yeah, thank you. So after going full time, which was really sparked by this by parents of students who came and said, "Thank you for teaching chess. Our kids are doing well. They're doing well in tournaments, but what we've really noticed is that their grades are improving in school, that they are learning to focus, that they've developing patience, they're learning sportsmanship, they're there's so many aspects of their life that are improving. They came to me and said, you know, thanks for doing that. We encourage you to keep on doing that. And we're just grateful for that aspect. That was what caused that light bulb moment. So I just went full-time coaching at that point. And within two years, I needed help because my schedule was completely full and there was a wait list of students, which led to hiring some coaches and ultimately launching Chess for Life, Chess number four life. That organization has grown over the years. Today we have 55 plus staff, we have benefits, we work with thousands of students weekly and more. What happened is about five years ago we had another inflection point where we said, what would it take to reach a million kids per week with these life skills through the game of chess in order to have a very wide you know, ex- uh, impact? And in answering that question, the key that we came up with was, well, what's the number one roadblock? And we felt that the number one roadblock was finding chess coaches because there are many chess players, but not all good chess players are great at coaching and teaching students, especially beginning students. Uh, Many talented players are just naturally talented and have a hard time breaking it down to that beginning level. And yet everybody has to start there. So what we said was, well, what if we could take educators who are already good at working with kids and give them the tools so they can introduce the basics of chess to the students in a fun and engaging way, and this way it can build the basics of chess that will allow us to teach the life skills. And then as students progress, then, of course, you can have the coaches who are more advanced teach the stronger students. And that's the path we set out on. And so we have the Chess for Life curriculum, videos, puzzles, activities. We've put it online, and we're now working with schools and districts in 10 states and growing rapidly. Um, So, you know, what the business looks like today is heading towards that objective, growing quickly. And in the last two and a half years, one of the most fun projects that we've done is developed a preschool curriculum for ages three and four. Hmm. And uh, what was really neat about this is we partnered with the Head Start organization, And ultimately, the Boeing company ended up giving a grant to Head Start in order to fund this. So there's a third-party evaluator that came in to observe what was being done and measure the outcomes, which has been really neat to see those outcomes. And it's now working this fall with thousands of three- and four-year-olds around the country already. That's awesome. So, So were you involved in the pitch to Boeing? Yes, very much so. Um, I so, partnered so up what's with- the secret? We've had different sort of uh, chess promoters. Um, of course, we've had Carol Meyer, the president of USCF, and uh, Judith, the president of Bay Area Chess. And they've talked about the challenges you sometimes face trying to uh, get corporate involvement in chess. So, so what was your pitch? <laughs> well, in this case, Head Start is the organization that put in the grant. I partnered with Head Start in order to put the wording together and the data. And I think the key was that we went into it already having proven it. Because when we had the idea up front, I had met the director of Head Start in Washington State, and I heard about the statistics on low-income, at-risk youth who arrive at kindergarten without the skills they need to succeed. And I felt there's something we can do here through the game of chess, because I've seen this work in elementary school. I figured we could do something there. And so when we talked about getting funding for the project, I suggested to the director, I said, you know, I believe strongly enough in this. I will donate my time 
and dollars in order to run a pilot before we ask for funding. And that's what we did. We ran a pilot for the first year, totally funded by us with time, you know, with all the resources. And the outcomes of that were significant enough that we were then able to take that pilot and bring that into the grant request. So, and so we had some proof, or at least uh, anecdotal. Yeah, evidence. I was going to ask, how do you measure the outcomes? So what we are seeking to do with the preschool project is not create good chess players. What we're seeking to do is to build the skills that allow students to have those early math, social, emotional, cognitive, literacy, and executive functioning skills that they need. So when they enter kindergarten, they will score well on the testing that is done to evaluate this and be really ready to achieve. And so the measurements have to do with those standards that are utilized in the state. For example, um, a state standard for kindergarten in early math is simply being able to count to 20 by the time they enter kindergarten. And on that scale, much as it, you know, students who come from a well-to-do background typically will have no, no challenge here. But students who come from homeless or at-risk background we have seen have tremendous challenge with even counting, even writing their own name, holding a book right side up, you know, right? all these different elements. And now when they start playing the game of chess, using the point value of the pieces, as they play fun activities, they're learning to count. They're learning to compare. They're learning to go, wait, two rooks, each is five points. I've got 10 points. That is a stretch for a three and four-year-old who comes from this background. And so those are the areas that are measured in the evaluation that was done, as well as simply the anecdotal reporting that came as well. So hopefully that's not TMI there, but it's been a pretty exciting project to see the outcome from using the concepts of the game of chess to build those early skills. And ultimately, those students are very likely going to be able to play a whole chess game. But that's not the objective early on. Yeah, I was going to ask. And first of all, there's no such thing as TMI here on Perpetual Chess, as our <laughs> regular listeners will know. But uh, but um, I was going to ask what you exactly teach them, because I'm a, a chess teacher myself, and I, I've got some experience teaching kids of that age, including most recently uh, my older son, my older kid. But... Uh, sure. You know, I, of course, find that they, they don't have trouble with the straight moving long range pieces, but knights and pawns, I feel like you and obviously checkmate, you can mm -hmm. get hung up on for, you know, a year or something. Oh, totally, totally. And one of the elements, key elements here is that during our pilot, what we did is we took the chess for life curriculum used in elementary school and when we gave it to the teachers who are preschool teachers and we trained them on how to deliver it. But what we found was that it was too much work for those teachers to translate a curriculum design for elementary kids and try to apply it in preschool. So that <clears throat> during that first year, what we did on this end is I, I sat down and rewrote the curriculum and we rewrote it for preschool. And then what we did is we partnered up with some experts in the field of early learning who helped map all of the objectives in chess directly to those state standards. And we built a curriculum that teachers could then implement. And on top of that, one of the key unique abilities of chess for life is our ability to train the trainer. So the key to all of this is that we have developed the training structure that allows us to go in and train dozens, if not hundreds of teachers at a time, most of whom have zero or very little background in chess. And within a very short period of time, a matter of hours, we're able to take them from intimidated intimidation by the game of chess to confidence in their ability to deliver the game of chess concepts to build the preschoolers' abilities. And so that's really been the, you could say the secret to the success of that program is the teachers are the heroes. They're the ones who are delivering it 90% of the teachers we work with, 95% knew nothing about chess, and after the training are eager to implement. Yeah, and I'm going to guess as a training mission, that's probably easier than, as you, I think you may have alluded to this earlier, than finding finding pre-existing, you know, reasonably strong chess players and teaching them how to manage kids and, uh, you know, how, how to, how to uh, effectively communicate uh, chess ideas. 
Totally, totally. And, you know, there's there's a great need for those advanced teachers as well. But what's fascinating is by doing this, the advanced chess players who are teaching are typically more energized by teaching more advanced students anyway. So what this does is it allows the teachers who didn't have a background in chess to be confident and deliver the basics. And then the advanced teachers pick up where the students progress. Makes sense. Um so what about your own, like, what about the development of the business? So, of course, you started out a uh, strong chess player and a chess teacher. So at, at some point, you must have found yourself needing to figure out, like, a uh, business. So, yeah. you know, how do you grow to 55 employees? And, uh, how, you know, what did you do to, to learn along the way uh, how, how to scale what you were doing? Thank you. So happy to touch base on that. I will say that I started my first business when I was 12 years old in the chess field. And that is really how I became a national master in chess is my older brother and myself partnered up and we invested in a company called Chess House at the time. And we would buy product at wholesale and we would resell it. And what I would do is I would read all the chess books before I resold them. And that's how I funded my own chess education. I'm pretty much a self-taught national master, rarely had any coaching outside of my own studies. And what occurred is at age 14, my older brother being 17, the owner of the chess house at the time, Don Oswald, passed away and his son was selling off the company, which my brother and I ended up acquiring. So we moved chess house from Kansas out to Washington State and relaunched that mail order company. And fast forward there, today my younger brother owns and runs that company, chesshouse.com, and has multiple employees there. But that's where I got some of my foundation of experience in running business. And then I had a few other entrepreneurial ideas over the years that I worked on. But in Chess for Life, that was really the key. So 16 years ago launched, first few years, just a few employees. And then you go through these inflection points where as you grow, the complexity gets to a point where you need to have management because you no longer have the ability to work one-on-one with all the team members. And similar to how I became a national master through self-study, reading tons of books, I've read over 100 chess books uh, as part of my study, I was a voracious reader when it came to business books. And when I would hear about different books or different courses, I would take them. I've continued to maintain that habit till today. So I'm regularly reading and learning and growing, seeking anywhere I can to improve my knowledge and skills. Um, Why? Because I don't want to be the constraint in the business. I don't want to be the one who holds the vision back. So over the years, you know, we grew to develop some corporate uh, structure. We built some management structure for different regional regions. And, uh, and then ultimately we transitioned to our current model where we have four physical centers plus a corporate office. We've got a, a leadership structure in place. The day-to-day operations is pretty well handled by the team that we have. We've got an incredible team that does a great job managing the thousands of students that come to us on a weekly basis. So my focus now is, is really upon the vision and how to move it forward towards that goal of creating tremendous impact through a million plus kids a week, developing those life skills. Um, so, not sure if that totally answers your question, but that's, no, it uh, does. And that's uh, a bit of the and story there, cool. And listeners, we'll we'll get to chess improvement, and I'll be hitting Elliot up for chess uh, for his favorite chess books. But first, at least for my own personal interest, what uh, what business resources and business books have uh, have resonated the most with you, or uh, affected the the things you do the most? You know, there's a there's a good number of, of books that have been tremendously impactful at the very different times over the years, you know, because your business is at different places at different times. So it's just like in a, in a chess game, right? You're not going to use the same tactic all the time. It depends upon the position. And so some of the ones that just stand out over the years, I would say in the last five years, some of the most impactful has been partnering up with the Strategic Coach Organization founded by Dan Sullivan. And just some tremendous insights have come from that organization, which I continue to participate with. I pay for coaching with them, read, read their books regularly. There's a tremendous number of mindset tools is the way I would describe it. You know, change your thinking is what's most of the time necessary in order to change the results. 
and then other books. Uh, Rockefeller Habits was a good one. Uh, yeah, just trying to think of of which ones. Outliers was was insightful. There's if you come to my office someday, you'll see probably 200 books that have been utilized or reread or or planning still to read. It's a huge part of what I do. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you highlight getting help from outside in terms of uh, your business growth because uh, Adam Weisbarth, who founded uh, Silver Knights in the D.C. area, another large-scale chess organization, also mentioned that he'd, he'd gotten consulting for the business itself. So for listeners, whatever you do, I think it's a valuable lesson, whether you're a chess teacher or you work outside the business world. I mean, it, it underscores the importance of uh, you know finding experts to, to help you with what you're doing. Oh, well, absolutely. I think it's very similar to like one of the 10 life skills that we teach. We call it better together. And that's that recognition that one piece alone has its own unique abilities, but playing by itself is not likely to win a game. You need the differing pieces and the differing powers that they have. So in, so in business and in life, you need to bring together different people's strengths in order to form a great team. And uh, if you think you can do it all on your own and you've got all the answers – well, I think everyone should should be able to know that's not uh, that's not likely to succeed. So, Elliot, it sounds for sure like you're a pretty busy guy. So, what inspired you to to take on even more and write a chess book? <laughs> so, you're referring to a pawn's journey, yes. which is just releasing right now. Ebook and audiobook just came out. Well, the interesting fact behind this is I really did not like to write when I was a kid in school. That was my least favorite subject of all. I would not, never have imagined myself writing a book. But what I found is over the years, people kept asking me, saying, so what do you mean when you say life skills through chess? And every time they would ask me that, I found myself telling stories, stories of students whose lives, whose, whose lives had really been transformed through the game and through mentorship and through experiences in playing in tournaments. And when that occurred, eventually I went, you know, I think there needs to be a book written so that people can understand what is meant by these life skills through chess. And that was the germination of the idea. And then the concept I had originally was perhaps what I could do is write a book that had 10 chapters, one chapter for each of the 10 life skills that we focus on, and tell the story of one student per chapter in order to illustrate it. And that was the original concept behind it. Yet in working with a publisher, uh, we worked through the different elements and last year sat down and talked it through. And ultimately I decided it was, it was worth writing a novel style of book where we incorporate many stories of students as raw material with, with things changed, but really into this novel so that people who don't play chess at all can totally grasp the concept of what's going on. And that was really the inspiration behind Apon's journey uh, to to bring to life what we mean when we say life skills through chess. And and I think uh, you know the reception so far has been pretty good with the ebook and audiobook in light of what our objective was. So we're pretty excited for what's going to happen when the physical book hits the market. Yeah, and it, it, and for listeners, it's coming out basically. Uh, right now um yeah so, october 9th so, is the official date and it's on pre-order already and the ebook and audiobook uh shot right up to bestseller status in the chess category when we launched them and we'll see what happens with the physical book as well okay and the story tracks um a a high school girl named april uh and i was just curious when reading it so how did you come up with the character is it a composite is it based on one of your students so April is a, is the fictitious main character in the book. The stories of how her life is transformed represent many of the students that I've worked with over the years. And so April is really, yes, a composite ultimately of one whose life is transformed in each of these different areas. And uh, so no one specifically references to April and then another main character, Gabe, um, but yeah, that's the that's the background behind it. And did you have an an audience in mind when you were writing this? I did. So in writing this book, I really had in mind the parents, the educators, and really those who care about 
children and educational impact. So I even wrote it with in mind that some middle school, high school students would likely end up reading the book. And so those were the audiences I primarily focused on, a lot of moms of students, educators, parents, and so on, and wrote it for them. And so I had a couple of people in mind as I wrote the book in order to ensure that that was the focus. And it's, it has been well received by some of those people who reviewed it early on. Cool. And how long has it taken you to write this? As we said, you've got a lot going on. So how did you uh, carve out the time? Well, yeah, that's that was something because life is very busy indeed with my own children now, ages eight and down to eight months. How, how many and do you have, Elliot? I've got six kids. Wow. Youngest is eight months. And the older three play in tournaments already. We don't push them into it, but they just enjoy to do it. And, and you know, one of my beliefs is that society and we generally put ceilings upon kids that don't need to be there. When we, we set kids up for failure in many cases by saying, oh, you're ahead of the average or the norm or you're behind or this. Uh, why? Every, every child's unique. Why not instead celebrate the progress that they make and their unique abilities? And so I, you know, I digress a little bit here, but that's a bit of the mindset that we have and really the success mindset that comes out in the book. You know, for example, I tell the story of the Oliver and this kid, names changed from real life, but this kid was a student for years and he had one unique characteristic and that was he had the ability to lose every single game he played. No matter how good his position, he found a way to lose, not even tie the game, always lose. I remember seeing one of his games where his opponent had only a rook left, and he had a queen, and he had multiple pawns, and he had pieces, and sure enough, he managed to get himself back rank checkmated. And this happened for over two years, and I was expecting he would quit at some point, but he didn't, and it was as if nothing I could do would break through until one day he played in a tournament. And the very last round of this tournament, he got a stalemate. He got a draw. That draw, he walked out of there because he had not lost the game. He walked out, and you would have thought by his walk that he had won the whole tournament. Hmm. And here's the key, though. The very next week, he won three games out of five and qualified for our state championships in Washington State. The very next week. You see, because what happened is the switch turned in his head. He went from this can't-do attitude, where if you think you can't, you're always right, to the can-do attitude, where if you think you can, you're probably right. And so that's one of the mindsets we talk about and one of the shifts that we see happen when students realize that, wait, I can do this. And so those are, that's what we mean when we talk about mindsets. And that's just one example of how kids' lives can be transformed that way. You know, that kid went on to the state championships, scored three out of five at state that same year. And all of this, not by adding chess knowledge, but by simply switching what his mindset was. Okay, and you're not getting away, Elliot, with escaping the writing process question, although... Oh, I'm <laughs> so yes, back to that. I got so caught up with uh, no. It's a it's a compelling story, and I, I'm I mean it's it's awesome, and I've seen that as well with students. But uh, so but I, there you go. Um, <laughs> back to the writing. So last year, I'm going to give huge kudos and hats off to my publisher, Made for Success Publishing, because they really are the ones who walked me through what it takes, helped me lay out a game plan, and li- late July. Last year, 2017, I started writing, and 89 days later, my draft was done. Wow. How many hours a day were you uh, grinding? I carved out three days a week, four hours at a time. Okay. And then it adjusted from there, and there was Labor Day that year. I remember writing at a Starbucks for uh, 12 hours. I think it was 12 hours straight writing, and, uh, you know, so it, it adjusted. But I just followed their advice and uh, got it done quickly, and then there was a lot of editing that occurred after that. But it got done in a short period of time, and I'm really glad I did because I don't think I would have had the time after. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, let's get to some chess talk, Elliot. Um, I know our, our listeners are waiting eagerly. So one thing I noticed in uh, researching you is that you do some some blindfold chess events in terms of uh, you know when you're doing chess promotion. So um, 
what what advice can you give uh, listeners in terms of working on visualization and how to how to up their blindfold games? Absolutely. I actually just shot a video on this, and I think it's might be publishing in the next week or two through Chess House. Uh, they're going to post it on their blog. We'll be posting it as well. But really. I'm not one of these genius blindfold players. I learned how to visualize the board and then worked on developing that skill to where today I can do multiple games. I can do five at any t- any point. I've done 12 at a time blindfold. And we teach our students to develop the skill of visualization. Here is the couple of basic steps that I would recommend someone do if they've not ever done blindfold before. The first step is to understand your board. And what I mean by that is you use notation letters and numbers, and you name a square and immediately try to see in your head what color it is. And for example, Ben, if I were to do this with you, just Uh-oh. really, really stop, quickly stop. <laughs> <laughs> No, don't worry. Just name any square as quickly as you can, and I will tell you the color. And I don't have a chessboard in front of me. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought you were putting okay. me on the spot. No, um, no. So go ahead and name any square. All right. G6. White. H10. Hey, nice. <laughs> That's off the edge. Ah, that would be black if it was there because it alternates. Okay. Uh, H2. That's a black square. Okay. I, I, I see that, uh, that you're legit. <laughs> and then what happens is when you get to visualize the board, at first if you can't do that and you go, wait, I can't even do that. Well, think about it. What's the square that the white queen sits on? Uh, D1. Excellent. And what color is it? White. Right, because the queen sits on her own color, right? Yes. So if it's white, then what color is D2? Um, Dark. Right, because it alternates. You see? So there is a way to figure it out, and with practice, you'll start to be able to figure it out faster and faster. Once you've got that stage one done, you then move to adding a piece on the board, and I prefer the knight because of its complexity. But... You can also use the other pieces if you need to. And now what you do is you start in a corner like H1, and you start practicing in your head seeing the pattern to move it from H1 to H2. And then from H2 to H3, and you go all the way around the edge of the board. So like from H1 to H2, you go from knight H1 to G3 to F1 to H2. And then as you do that, it takes a while, and you do it slowly at first. But that's stage two where you move a piece on an empty chessboard. And once you get comfortable with the edge, then you move it across the board. So, for example, you would pick any two squares, and now you start moving the knight from one to the other square. And I can do it very fast because I've practiced this. You know, So if you were to pick any two squares, I could move the knight very quickly and do it for you. And so on. Once you get beyond that, you're visualizing your board better and better. And then you start moving into actually playing chess blindfolded. But we don't do it just blindfolded right away. What I do is I do an empty chess board. And then what you do is you play three or four moves by saying your moves with your opponent without moving the pieces. And then after you've done those four moves, you then you set up the position where it is now. And then you play the next four moves in your head. And then set up that position. And so on. Basically, you're building the skill. That's all it is. And I'm making this short because I don't want to take too much time on this call. But this is something that we teach. It's something I shot a very short video on to explain. And uh, there was a rough ebook I wrote on this once. I don't publish it yet because it needs some, a lot of editing. But it's really straightforward. It's step-by-step building that skill. And I believe that any normal person can learn to play chess blindfolded and build those visualization skills. Okay. Well, the one bit of information I have to apply you for, because this is where it sort of breaks down for me, and I think likely for some listeners, and we had the blindfold wizard, Timur Gureyev, Mm -hmm. uh, on the podcast, and he he either played it close to the vest, or I think more likely he's just, you know, such a natural genius that he's (laughs) the, the proverbial, you know... It comes too easily to him. I don't think he he's uh, equipped to uh, teach laymen like me. But in any event, how do you how do you scale it to multiple boards? To me, that's okay. where it becomes a real challenge. So I would agree with you that Timur, I believe, is extremely talented in this regard. For myself, it took work, and so what I did is once I could do a single chess game and could visualize it and remember it, then I started doing two. And what I would do is I played one with the white pieces and one with the dark pieces so that I wouldn't confuse which game I was thinking about at that time. And I was found I was able with practice to expand that 
to really four, three, four games without a problem. Where it started getting tricky was once I started to go beyond that, because then it was like, okay, game number one has made their move, and I was having trouble remembering which game I was actually trying to think on. And that's where I started implementing my own memory tricks or organization. So the short answer on this one is when I started playing, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine games at once blindfolded, I would take the first, I'll just, I'll just use six for an example. If I had six games blindfolded, what I would do is I would split it into three and three. And I would do my best to remember the first three games with a theme that related among all three. So, for example, I might play an opening that controls E4, and I might play a defense that also is like D5 controlling E4, and I might play my third game if I'm white as knight, as uh, you know, knight C3 controlling E4. And I would just be thinking in terms of a theme for each group. And it's really just dividing and conquering you know, the organization of, of memory and the recall that you do. And so that's what I did as I built up to 12 games at a time. I've had a dream of getting far beyond that at some point, but it does take time and practice. And with my own kids and business growing, I've not had the time to develop it further. Well, that's still pretty pretty impressive to me. Um, and I'm sure it doesn't hurt your, your overall chess game either. I think it's tremendously helpful, you know, because when you're calculating, you're imagining positions that are not there in front of you. So being able to build your visualization skill is, I think, a, a tremendous benefit. And let alone think about it in terms of business and life, right? Which is really what I care about. If well, you I'm, can build that ability to visualize, then visualize your future in business. Visualize where you're headed and then figure out how to get there. That's easier to me than playing six blindfold games. But but I get where you're coming <laughs> from. Um, I look forward to the ebook, Elliot. That's for sure. Um, but I mean, of course, it sounds like it's just, as you say, it's breaking the problem down into small pieces and, uh, you know, uh, building building the skills, taking it slow. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay, so Elliot, I know that you're joining us from the Olympiad. And before we started recording, you were sweating the Ugandan women's team's results. So I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, we can't let you out of here with a little bit of, without a little bit of chess improvement advice and a few chess book recommendations. So, uh, So what do you have for us? <laughs> so let's see um for books to improve well let me let me let me just give my general advice you know when people come to me and they say okay so what do i need to do to improve my first request or question back is well tell me a little bit about yourself because the advice is going to need to map to where you're at and in general, here's what I think about. I think about chess in a very logical manner. I feel that it's because of how I learned. Being self-taught, I was not interested in just playing through hundreds of Grandmaster games and not really understanding why the moves were played. What I was interested in was, what are concepts that I can apply? And so my general recommendation is, think about your endgame. Is your endgame where it needs to be in order to succeed at the level you want to get to. And one of my favorite books that I recommend for the end game is Silman's uh, Complete Endgame Course. And obviously I'm talking here not master level players. I'm talking for, let's say, club players and so on. Uh, if you're more advanced, I loved a lot of the Dvoretsky books. And Cherashevsky had some great, great books. Mendes was good on some end games, uh, again, for the club player with the practical rook endings and those. Why? Because of the principles that you could understand and then seek to apply. And then when it came to tactics, I feel that tactics are essential because you can have the best strategy in the world, but without tactics, you're going to blow your strategy. And so tactics really requires that regular, consistent practice. And pretty much any tactics book is great. I've gone through many different ones. Combination challenge and sharpen your tactics, and there's tactics online. But the key, just like with blindfold and visualization, is consistency. I would rather have students practice 10 minutes a day, four or five days a week, than spend two hours one day a week. I'd rather have the consistent returning to it so that it imprints it in the memory with, with that regular repetition. And so solving tactics is a must in my view. Any student, I strongly encourage them, spend at least 15 minutes a day solving puzzles, solving tactics. And then okay. you've got, and then, you know, you've got the middle game. 
And what do you do in the middle game in the most complex part, you know, part of a game? Well, learning to understand the imbalances and how to create a plan is to me foundational. And where I differ from some coaches in terms of the opening, uh, many times students want to build solid openings quickly. My view is let's not memorize openings at all. Let's understand chess positions. And when you understand chess positions, you're going to play good openings. Now, I'm not saying ignore openings completely. The way I recommend learning the openings is play a game in a tournament, review the game afterwards, and then analyze that opening in light of what you played versus what others and grandmasters play. Why? Because you've got your own experience, which is very powerful, to then compare and see the gaps. And so, you know, those are just some of my quick recommendations. You know, there's a ton of great chess books. Silman's book on how to reassess your chess was influential. I felt that was a, did a good job. Um, I loved, like I said already, the Dvoretsky books for more advanced players. And yeah, overall, I would say that what happened is I ended up writing the chess for life curriculum because I pulled from so many sources and I was looking for a way to say, what would I teach in what order? in order to avoid building bad habits. And that's why I ended up writing the Chess for Life curriculum. And, of course, there's tons of great books out there that can support each of these areas. Okay, excellent advice. I, I, I mean, uh, I think I really like the way you broke it down. Um, a lot of the books uh, are highlighted frequently for good reason. You know, Jeremy, Jeremy Selman and Dvoretsky in particular being, uh, you know, legendary uh, chess uh, authors. So I, I think that there's there's a lot that people can take from that. And, of course, people, regular listeners, again, have heard me echo what you said about openings. I think it's important not to get too bogged down in theory, especially, like, below the 2,000 level. Um, okay, Elliot, uh, anything else? I know you're super busy. Have you managed – so, again, before we were talking, you were sweating the results online. Have you managed to take a peek during our interview at I all? I did. I did, of course. How, how can I not look, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, – well, the Ugandan teams had a tough, tough round this time, and so they're they're getting defeated pretty badly. The last game is probably going to just be a draw. But uh, on the more fun note, the U.S. men's team, I took a quick look. They've they've really won the match already, and there's still a game going on. But Sam Shankland won a nice Bishop's opposite color game, and Caruana is still playing, although it looks drawish. Hikaru drew his game, and Wesley so won his already. So U.S. is still rolling forward. Very nicely. Excellent. Good to hear. And yeah, the, the best part is yet to come. So um, so in, enjoy the rest of your time there, Elliot. Thanks for thanks for beaming in. Um, it's nice to get a little report of uh, from from Batumi. Well, it's been a pleasure to be on with you, Ben. Thanks so much for having me as a guest. And I will be enjoying, I hope, the rest of the Olympiad here and, and helping the team. Because at the end of the day, it's not about winning every game, but it's about that mindset of win, draw, or learn in order to continually improve, always improve. Okay, and one so, last thing, one last thing, Elliot, before you go, if people would like to reach you or reach out to your organization, what's what's the best way to track you down? Absolutely. Uh, chess for Life, chess, the number four, life.com is our website with all kinds of info. Um, my personal website, elliotneff.com or aponsjourney.com has additional info and you can contact me through either one of those. So those are probably the best ways to reach us. Excellent. And I'll put a link to uh, the book as well. Um, and of course, your book recommendations will be on the endless book recommendation page. Um, all right, Elliot, thanks a lot for joining me and uh, enjoy the rest of your time in Batumi. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks to friend of the podcast, Geert Vandervelt, for supplying the intro music. Thanks to my producer, Matthew Passy, as always. And thanks to everyone who supports the show by telling a friend or writing a positive review on your podcast platform. But most of all, I want to give thanks to those of you who've given financial support to the show. Without you guys, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. I also want to give special thanks to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. This list continues to grow, which is a wonderful thing. It keeps the podcast healthy, keeps the episodes coming, and lets me dream up plans to improve the podcast over time. So special thanks go out to Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancouge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Ali Morchetti, Andre Krizdwa, Brian Mullis, Carl Labans, 
I am Carlos Perdomo, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Chris Chabris, Christopher Wood. I am Christoph Zalicki, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Daniel Vinay, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith. I am Elect Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis. I am Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Yaka Bagard of Quality Chess Publishing, James Bonastia, Jason Woolham, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Hartman, John Jernigan, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, WGM Katarina Nemkova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gop- Gopalakrishnan, Laura Boyavsky, Lech Ambrose. Ambrzkowski, I hope I did okay there, Alec. Leo Delgado, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passi, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Nate Salon, Nathan Webster, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Paolo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahalva, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, Ryan Stone, Steiner Lima, Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouz, Zhao Chang, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, guys. Catch you all next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.